Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I mentioned in the last episode that all of chapters 8, 9, and 10 constitute a single argument. In fact, you could add verse 1 of chapter 11 to that as well, where Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's an unfortunate chapter division, as most Bible publishers recognize today. Uh, In the ESV Bible open in front of me, they present chapter 11, verse 1 as part of chapter 10, as opposed to grouping it with the conversation about head coverings in the first part of chapter 11. This whole section represents Paul's response to a question they had asked about eating food sacrificed to idols. You can see that in chapter 8, verse 1. Now, concerning food offered to idols. In the ancient world, eating meat was generally something done in connection with religious ritual. It was something of a special occasion, and it was something that at least some of the folks in the church at Corinth were eager to continue doing. And why not? After all, an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. So, since we know that pagan religion is all bunk anyway, why miss out on this enjoyable and even potentially strategic opportunity? That was the question. In chapter 8, Paul concedes a great deal of their argument, but then in verse 7, he reminds them of a very important factor that they have failed to consider. He says, yes, you're right, but not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak, is defiled. So we have some new Christians who have only recently come out of the pagan system, and they may view this as an invitation to syncretism or compromise, and that may hinder them in their growth and development. So Paul offers his conclusion in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now here in chapter 9, Paul continues to hold up his own approach to this matter as an example for them to follow. And as I mentioned, that leads to his concluding statement for this whole section in chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul Sampley says here, commenting on chapter 9, that the Apostle Paul is providing the Corinthians with a study of claimable rights that go unclaimed for a purpose. Closed quote. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. It'll be helpful here to point out that in Greek, the anticipated answer to a rhetorical question is actually signaled in the wording of the question. If you include the word ooh in the question, then you anticipate an answer of yes. If you include the word may in the question, you anticipate an answer of no. By the way, that will be very helpful for you to know when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. When Paul says there, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? All of those questions anticipate the answer, 
No, no, we're not all apostles. No, we're not all prophets. No, we do not all speak in tongues. That's the whole point of that passage. Here, Paul's point is that he is an apostle and he does have certain rights and he doesn't for a second assume that anyone in Corinth is going to disagree with him on that. They above all people know who he is. Their existence as a church is proof of his apostleship. So Paul says, I am an apostle and I have a variety of rights. He continues in verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Again, the wording of the question in Greek indicates that Paul anticipates the answer of yes to all these questions. Yes, I have the right to material support and hospitality from those I minister among. Yes, I have the right to have a believing wife with me on my travels. And yes, I have the right to exact a salary so as to be fully focused on the work of the ministry. Yes, yes, yes. Now, before we get to Paul's willingness to forgo those rights, if it seemed advantageous to him, let's notice a few things of more than passing interest. First of all, it is interesting that Paul mentions Barnabas. Apparently, Paul and Barnabas were the only two unmarried men among the apostles. He says that the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord are supported along with their wives. So that's interesting. First of all, because it establishes that the general rule was for Christian leaders and teachers to be married. And that certainly fits with what Paul lays down as a general rule in 1 Timothy 3 with respect to the qualifications for an overseer, for an episkopos. He says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife. Now, the Roman Catholics did not outlaw marriage for priests and bishops until the 12th century. And it was one of the main things that the Protestant reformers were eager to bring back because the Bible makes it clear that the general rule is for pastors and elders to be married family men. That is the norm. That is their right. And yet it is not a requirement. It is a right that some men may forgo, as Paul and Barnabas obviously had done. Now, it is also interesting that Paul mentions Barnabas here because it implies that he and Barnabas were still in touch and that there was no acrimony between the two. You will recall that in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas parted ways in terms of being missionary partners over a dispute about their junior companions. Barnabas wanted to give John Mark another shot, whereas Paul was leery about that given his failure to complete the journey the first time. And they weren't able to come to agreement, so they parted company, one going one way, the other going another. And yet it does not appear as if that meant the end of their friendship. Paul can still point to Barnabas as a fellow workman. And that's a good reminder. Deciding not to partner together does not imply disrespect or loss of relationship. Sometimes it just means that in order to get stuff done for the Lord, folks need to go their own way. There is a category for that, and we see evidence of that here. Finally, it is interesting to note that Paul says that he and Barnabas had the right to bring along a believing wife. The Greek literally says a sister, a Christian sister as wife. The Pillar New Testament commentary says here, 
that any wife Paul or Barnabas might bring along would be a believing, literally sister wife, reflects the biblical expectation that believers should marry within the family of God, closed quote. That too is worth noticing. Paul had rights, plenty of them, but he was quite happy to forgo them all for the sake of the gospel. That's the point he's getting to. But first he appeals to some well-known examples from Roman life to make the point that not only were these rights, but they were cultural norms as well. He says in verse 7, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Everybody understands that people earn their living from whatever it is they work at. This is a right in any civil, rational society, and it is also a norm, as all of you well know. And of course, it's in the Bible as well. He says in verse 8, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak certainly for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Now, in verses 8 to 9, again, we know the implied answer to all of these questions because of the particles that Paul inserts. Do I say this on my own authority? No. There, Paul inserts the particle, may. Does not the law say the same? Yes. There, Paul inserts the particle, ooh. By the way, wouldn't that be handy in English? I've often thought that we should do something like this to avoid confusion. Perhaps a a right-side-up question mark could indicate an anticipated answer of yes, whereas an upside-down question mark could indicate an anticipated answer of no. I think that would be very helpful. Nevertheless, Paul is saying here that not only are his claims to these various rights supported by cultural custom and the common custom of the other apostles, they're also enshrined in the law. Moses said that as a principle of fairness. People, no less than animals, should derive their living from what they are called to work at. Paul was called to work at church planting. Therefore, as a principle of fairness, he has every right to derive a salary from church planting. Verse 12, If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. The climax of Paul's argument here is that even Jesus said that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. That's found in Luke 10.7 and Matthew 10.10, and then is cited again by Paul in 1 Timothy 5.17-18. There, he says, elders who do well as leaders should be reckoned worthy of a double stipend, in particular those who labor at preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, a threshing ox shall not be muzzled, and besides, the workman earns his pay. So there, we can see Paul repeating this whole argument, but there, as a general rule for all the churches. Whereas here, 
He is about to explain why he usually, though not always, ignores this general rule. Verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Now, in case we're worried that Paul might be doing something wrong by refusing to be paid by the Corinthians, David Garland says very helpfully here, Paul did not understand himself to be disobeying a decree from the Lord, but interpreted as a right that he was free to accept or refuse, close quote. So that's the whole point here. Paul is saying that to be free does not mean to be free to do whatever you want. It means to be free to live with less than you deserve for the sake of the weaker brother and for the sake of the progress of the gospel. That's real Christian freedom. Paul wants to support himself in this work. In part, he says, so as to rack up eternal rewards, but also because he believed that it might not be wise for him to receive support from the Corinthians because of their exposure to and immersion in the sickness of Roman patronage. Paul didn't want to be in anyone's pocket. And if he accepted support from a rich Roman patron, there might be some implication that said patron would have influence over what Paul was saying and doing in their midst. And such things were common in those days, and as any pastor will tell you, they are not unheard of in our day. It is not unheard of for a large donor to the church to assume that he or she will have special access to the pastor and a little bit of extra influence when it's time for difficult decisions to be made. I found it expedient in your case to avoid all of that by simply supplying my own needs while working to establish your congregation, which is something that I am perfectly free to do. That's freedom. The freedom to do whatever will best serve the advance of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. I will do whatever I need to do for Team Jesus, Paul says here. I will work my fingers to the bone. I will suffer any indignity. I will do whatever will best serve the glory and the honor of King Jesus. That's what it means to be free. I am free to serve Jesus to the best of my ability and opportunity. Freedom is slavery to Christ and all for the sake of the gospel. And that is precisely how I lived among you, Paul says. Verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. This statement must have 
sounded like a thunderclap to all who heard it. Who can imagine a first century Jew saying something like this? The, the Jews were identified by their particular diet and their unique customs. That was their entire identity. But here, Paul says that he can take it or leave it as the situation requires. C.K. Barrett summarizes, his Judaism was no longer of his very being, but a guise he could adopt or discard at will. Closed quote. That is absolutely remarkable. And that is the example that Paul is holding up to the Corinthians and to all of us. Stop thinking of yourselves as Jews or Romans or Americans or whites or blacks or whatever. You are those things, but those things do not define you anymore. They are reduced in significance by virtue of your adoption into the family of God through faith in Christ. Now, Use those things if they can help you share the gospel, but do not cling to them as if they are your skin. They are not. Christ is your skin now. That's Paul's approach to identity. And it is also his approach to strategy with respect to Christian mission. David Pryor says here, his fundamental philosophy was to discover the methods which combine the greatest integrity with the greatest impact, closed quote. Now, we would want to be careful not to over-apply what Paul is saying here. He is talking about cultural and methodological flexibility, but he is not talking about being willing to change or modify the Christian message. David Garland wants to remind us of that here. He says, he, Paul, does not think that fundamental and distinctive demands are negotiable, depending on the circumstances. He did not tone down his assault on idolatry to avoid offending idolaters or to curry favor with them. His accommodation has nothing to do with watering down the gospel message, soft-peddling its ethical demands, or compromising its absolute monotheism. Paul never modified the message of Christ crucified to make it less of a scandal to Jews or less foolish to the Greeks, closed quote. Paul was faithful, focused, and flexible whenever it was possible to be so, and all with an eye on the prize. That's, that's really the sting in Paul's argument. He says, in effect, you are asking me a question about meat and wine at a pagan festival? You would risk the cause of the gospel for food and drink? I have given up far more than that, and I am more than willing to go even to the last mile. I will give it all I will suffer loss unending if only I may gain brothers and sisters unto Christ. That's the prize, Paul says, and I am fixed upon it. Verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Most commentators understand these last verses as really a transition into chapter 10. Paul is talking here about the danger of assuming our reward. Fruitfulness doesn't just happen. It has to be planned for. It requires pain and prioritization. I will do without, Paul says. I will exercise self-control. And so must you if you wish to claim the prize. Chapter 10, then, 
is a warning drawn from the history of Israel. Many people get off to a good start but fail to finish well and fail to achieve reward and all for lack of discipline. Let us be wise in not following their example, Paul says. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also access all our content through the app, the Into the Word app that is available wherever you get apps. And it is the best way to access all of our content. We have so much content now by the grace of God that it's hard to find without the app. And so we would encourage you to get that. You can use that to find all of our Old Testament episodes, all of our New Testament episodes, and all of our special topics episodes as well. We also would love for you to check us out on Facebook. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there. Just put in the search bar, Into the Word, and you ought to be able to find us. And you can connect with other Bible readers there, folks who are posting, reading, commenting, liking, and sharing. And it's just a great place to build a little bit of community around the discipline of reading God's Word. Love to see you there. And I hope to see you again real soon, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. Into the Word.